Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is James Bowie. Hello there. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today, we are talking about Paradise Lost. Yes, indeed. What is Paradise Lost, James? Paradise Lost is an epic poem written by John Milton and first published in England in 1667. It is written in heroic verse, unrhymed iambic pentameter in this case. And it is the inspiration uh, in both themes and in the name of the title uh, for his Dark Materials, the fantasy series by Philip Pullman, which we'll be covering in our next episode. So today, James is doing the history segment. What are you talking about, James? Well, I'll be talking about portrayals of Satan in art and uh, mostly in um, medieval performances in uh, in plays. And that's because Satan is a major character in Paradise Lost, not <laughs> yeah. just because you want to talk about Satan. Not just because I want to talk about Satan. Actually, one of the most uh, unique things about Paradise Lost uh, among literature is its use of Satan as a central figure and as an almost heroic figure. Uh, one of the things that people often come away with the book uh, from the epic poem with is a surprise about how much they related to Satan. So I want to look at how that was grounded in earlier depictions and also how it departed from them in a way that's unique and special to Paradise Lost. And I will be talking about the life of John Milton and his influences and, I guess, what led him to write this epic piece of poetry. So, James, why don't you take it away? All right. Uh, Well, Milton's portrayal of Satan is one of the most famous and it is perhaps the most influential, uh, which makes sense because uh, one of the things I meant to say in the introduction of Paradise Lost is that It is considered by many to be the greatest work of poetry in the English language. Uh, And his portrayal of Satan is actually born out of earlier artistic depictions. Um, These include stories from from folklore, uh, liturgical and morality plays, and other epic poetry. That said, Milton makes a distinct break from both typical medieval depictions of Satan and from uh, the portrayal of Satan in Dante's Inferno. Satan in Paradise Lost is evil, uh, but he retains some of his virtue. He is relatable in his pain and his self-reflection. It is an intimate portrait of an almost tragic figure, a human Satan, if you will. Uh, And I just want to mention before I begin that I was greatly helped in this segment by a paper written by Morgan A. Matos called The Satanic Phenomenon Medieval Representations of Satan. (laughs) So uh, it's kind of weird to be searching Google uh, page after page for a look at how Satan has been depicted over time, but this was exactly what I was looking for, and I was very grateful for it. Uh, First off, I should mention that um, a lot of the early portrayals in art and visual art of Satan were inspired by uh, the descriptions of pagan gods. Um, The early church thought pagan gods were demons, um, that mm-hmm. were being falsely worshipped as idols and were actually causing disease and and natural catastrophes on earth and actually corrupting people and causing them to do evil. And actually, that's the way that um, uh, pagan gods appear in Paradise Lost oh, as well. that makes so much sense. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, well, and here's just a couple of examples. Um, 
Satan gets his goat legs from the Greek god Pan, uh, and Pan is a god of the wilderness, uh, especially the mountains, shepherds. Um, he's also associated with sex and fertility, the season of spring, and he is a god of theatrical criticism. <laughs> the wilderness, sex, and theatrical criticism. <laughs> yes, you, you see it all. You get the connection. Um, but anyway, he's not such a bad guy, but he had uh, goat legs, and so then so does Satan. Um, there's another example in uh, the Egyptian god Bess's beard. That's where Satan gets facial hair from. And Bess, another good guy by all accounts, a god of households, mothers, children, childbirth. And eventually he became just a god of protection from enemies in general. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, also known as the devil. Uh, Satan, in the popular imagination, was a compilation not just of these pagan ideas uh, mixed into these, these art representations, but also from stories that used him in folklore and what some people call popular religion. It's a mixture of folklore and popular religion that we get our ideas of Satan because there's only so many references to him in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament and in the Torah. Uh, a lot of the ideas about Satan that influenced um, basically myths about him are from apocryphal texts that don't make it into the Torah and don't make it into the New Testament. Mm -hmm. When They're did not... they start coming around? Uh, in the early church. Mm. Early church. Uh, as old as Christianity and even before Christianity in, in Judaism, uh, there were different texts that didn't actually make it in that talked about Satan in a way that you can actually relate the ideas of him there to folk folklore traditions that sprung up about him. Now, Popular religion as a term refers to the ideas and understandings of a mostly uneducated laity. So there's religion religion as it exists to the educated class class of priests and monks, like what the official real thing is for everybody who's literate and can actually read the scripture. And then there's the understanding of people who don't have access to the scripture and couldn't read it if they did, but still are going to church and being taught, right? So what their understanding is. And folklore blends into those understandings. They mm -hmm. affect each other, even though popular religion is still trying to do the right thing and be much more organized. Right. Well, it reminds me of when we used to talk about or have talked about like the Celtic myths and how Christianity basically took from those mm -hmm. as a way to blend the uh, beliefs people already had with Christianity. Yes, and like some of the holidays and everything where it's like you don't have to leave everything, but you have to put it in the right way. Yeah, where th that mix happens. It's an organic thing, uh, regions and cultures coming together and shifting faiths. Now, in folklore, Satan tended to be portrayed as an evil predator, of course, but he was also portrayed as a buffoon, mm. which I think, you know, <laughs> like there is a thing of trying to trick the devil and maybe it works in folklore, right? Right. Um, he goes down to Georgia sometimes. <laughs> exactly. That's that's a folklore sort of style yeah, devil. Um, you can try to, you can, you can beat him in a violin contest, dang it, or a fiddle contest, right? It's fiddle, yeah. Yeah, it's fiddle. Um, anyway, uh... Some say that uh, folklore's take on Satan in this way might in part have been to relieve the tension created by popular religion's take, which was of a much more of horrifying Satan. Mm -hmm. Anyway, both of these aspects became a part of liturgical dramas. Now, in the Corpus Christi cycle plays, Satan had a small part that over a couple hundred years grew into a larger and larger part. Actually, it didn't even take the 200. 
Um, they started to be performed in the late, teen, late 1300s and were performed for about 200 years. And these were big productions where you got a whole bunch of wagons to help with the performance and the staging. And it would involve hundreds of people in the community helping to put these things on. And this was overseen by the church. In these plays, Satan was used for both comedy and drama. So a couple of examples. There's a play called The Fall of Man from 1373. In it, we have a Satan who is actually explaining uh, the motivations of his actions. We have a Satan talking about how he's jealous of man and how uh, it angers him that God, through Jesus, would choose to share in manhood and humanity's form, but not the angelic form, and how this motivates him to bring about our fall. And this is one of the first times— Sounds you... similar to Milton's Satan in Re a way. It does, because you're getting a look inside Satan's head. It, you get the reasoning of Satan, and it's not just that he's just full of hate. It's like why he's wounded, what wounds him and causes him pain, whether it should or not, and causes him to act the way that he does. And it could hurt my feelings, too. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to get into that. It's dangerous to relate to Satan, even though Milton made me. Um, the Passion Play, uh, which was part of the End Town plays from the 1400s. Now, by the way, I don't know who wrote these. I looked. A lot of it we just don't know. And maybe it's because it was a lot of people, and maybe because when you're writing something like the Passion Play, it's not important to take credit. Uh, also a note, the End Town plays, the End Town play cycles are called that because... Um, when they're written down, it says end town, and you just insert the name of the town you're ah. in. Ah. <laughs> and now it's that town's plays. Got it. Right. I was thinking something much darker. Okay. <laughs> well, um, the Passion Play is characterized by intense crowd action. We have, in medieval style, brutal depictions of the crucifixion. And amidst this, we get soliloquies, where characters will come forward and they will, apart from everything, explain what's going on with them, what they're thinking, and what they're feeling. And Mary gets this, talking about um, watching the suffering of her son and how it pains her, but how she knows this is part of God's plan for him. You get uh, Peter, and he gets a soliloquy after he's betrayed Christ and what he's feeling after he's denied him three times after Christ um, has been taken away. Um, and also, Satan gets soliloquies. And actually, the passion play opens up with Satan getting a lengthy opening monologue in which he does comedic routines. A quote from the stage directions, Satan, gorgeously attired as a gallant, boasts to the audience. <laughs> um, so he's making claims and bragging in a way that, although it is on point and on topic for his perspective, is also meant to be silly. His lies and things are outrageous, audacious, and fun, right? He finishes by going into a bit about where all of his fine imported clothes are from, <laughs> where he got each piece. And the way he's dressed is meant to be a send-up of uh, medieval court attire at the time, right? Which I think is fun. I think that's really fun. And reminds me of Shakespeare, too. Yes, because, and this is the thing, it's like it, one of the things um, that Matos was writing about when he's describing this is like, it might be hard for a contemporary audience to imagine doing a comedic bit with Satan in an opening monologue and then going into how serious and dramatic and, and painful the crucifixion is. But that existed in these plays. But like you said, yeah, Shakespeare was doing that too. Or he's probably inspired by this. Right? Oh, maybe. That you can have tragedy and have comedy right before it, right after it. 
Um, in these pl- in this play, Satan is part of the light part before mm-hmm. it really gets dark. And not only is he there at the beginning, he's there the whole time because the way the stage is set up, heaven, hell, and locations on earth remain on stage the entire time in the round. Mm-hmm. So he's always present. So, of course, because he's partly comedic, because he's shocking, because he is an interesting character when portrayed that way, he's exciting, he gets featured more and more. Now, as liturgical drama became more censored (laughs) um, by the church and they started really taking a look at, hey, what are we doing here? And that would happen especially during the Reformation. Um, Satan became an even more popular character in morality plays, which weren't being produced by the church, but were still being produced with, hey, we're doing a moral message. And even though the church tried to put a tamper on some morality plays, they were too popular and just kept going. They started to be produced around the early 1400s. And the very first one was called The Castle of Perseverance, written sometime between 1405 and 1420. It's the earliest morality play, and it's about a castle under siege from a devil, Belial, who is also in Paradise Lost, and the seven deadly sins incarnate. And it's being defended by physical virtues, also embodied physically. Now, In this play, the devils get to use slang and they get to have slapstick humor. They're vulgar in a way that can be shocking but is funny. And this is paired with Satan being a really violent and scary character. Mm -hmm. But you have hell showing up in both those ways. In the morality play Mankind in 1470, we get an even further evolution of that where the play starts with a warning from the character Mercy. And he says, and for the record, in Mankind and, and morality plays in general, you have a lot of characters who stand in for a lot of ideas or people. So we have, yeah, Mercy is a character. Mankind is a character and represents all of mankind. Got it. So it, the, that play, Mankind, starts with Mercy warning the audience about the danger of temptation. He is immediately... At the end of this speech, mocked by a character named Mischief and other demonic characters who are using wordplay and mimicking what he just said and also using slapstick humor. Later, when mankind enters, mankind sees these vices, these demons, and goes, hey, you know, I I pray for your good fortune. And they laugh at him, and they mock him, and they eventually come up with a quote-unquote Christmas song that's about cleaning your butthole. (laughs) And uses vulgar, more vulgar language than we use in our podcast, actually, (laughs) for real. Yeah, And they get the audience to sing along with it. That's part of the show. And it's funny. And now that you're complicit for laughing along with the devils, Mercy's going to come back later and make you feel real guilty about that. And that's part of, yeah, that's part of the journey of the show, which, of course, reminds me of Milton getting you to actually sympathize with... uh, The devil. With the devil. It's very Catholic to me. (laughs) (laughs) Even though it was written by a man who's very much not. Yeah. But speaking of Catholics, next up is Dante's Inferno, another work of epic poetry where, you know, and this is something that Matos wrote, I thought made a lot of sense. Part of the reason that Dante's Inferno and that uh, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus and uh, Milton's Paradise Lost are so big and impactful in the representations of the devil is that they're simply of a higher artistic quality. Of just, course, Just yeah. pure and simple. They have an impact because they're better written, um, not just because of the interesting things that they're doing with him. Just well, every aspect of it is better. that's part of what makes it better. a higher quality. Yeah, it is part of it. But, you know, it's also just their poetic ability. 
Um, now, in Dante's Inferno, uh, the, by the way, written by Dante Alighieri, uh, it's Dante's Inferno, which depicts hell and a journey through it, is the first of three parts of the Divine Comedy, published in 1320, also an epic poem that, of course, uh, John Milton was very familiar with. And we get a really impactful and moving description of hell uh, that has captured the public imagination ever since. I mean, one of the things in both Paradise Lost um, and looking at Dante's Inferno you will get is lots of D&D characters and locations. <laughs> it stayed there with Most us. importantly. Yeah. Um, the devil in Dante's Inferno is horrific and powerful in his way, but he's also pathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, Uh Real brief mention of Marlowe's Mephistopheles from Dr. Faustus. Uh, he is also, along with Paradise Lost, the most influential portrayal of the devil. This is where he is hungry for your soul, like Dante and Milton's Satan, but he, unlike the the uh, Dante's Inferno Satan, is intelligent. He's cunning, he's charming, and he's capable of a revealing honesty amidst the lies, which mm. ties in. And I haven't read Dante's Inferno, but that's not a thing with that Satan? Uh, no, no. Mm-hmm. He, he is actually um, almost unable to act at all except for chewing on the heads of people like Brutus. Oh. Yeah, because he's so opposite of God that he is almost incapable of anything, weighted down as he is by sin at the depths of hell. Yeah. Now, Milton's Satan is so three-dimensional and compelling that he's appreciated both by atheists who hate religion and Christians who love God and Jesus. He is relatable um, He and in a way that would even work on people that sympathized with Milton politically. He has the devil make Republican arguments that sound like the kind of arguments Milton was making in his own time against the monarchy, and yet he's putting it in Satan's mouth. Uh, he is powerful and he's terrifying, yet he's capable of self-reflection and even remorse. He is shown to have free will and a full understanding of his wrongdoing and also to long for redemption. He feels the pain of despair and these things bring us into him. They mm-hmm. help us relate to him. Um, that also I mentioned at the very beginning, the Satan in Paradise Lost, he does not lose all his virtues and Milton goes out of his way to say that. He is still courageous, he's hard-working, and he's got a silver tongue. So, uh, in conclusion, um, Paradise Lost's uh, Satan is easier to understand and more relatable, um, and I think that relates very much to the medieval morality play, where we're meant to be brought along with him and see ourselves in him, mm-hmm. and then have the, 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 the uh, revulsion at the end. You know, to, to, to feel the power of temptation and also to resist it with the arc of the story. Yeah, that's really cool, James. Super interesting. Thank you. I, it was really interesting to research. And once again, a great shout out uh, to Mr. Morgan A. Matos. Well, I'm going to talk about John Milton and cover some of the stuff that you talked about as well. Just go a little bit more in depth. He was born in 1608. I think he was seven when Shakespeare died, just for fun to say, because Shakespeare is the other great English poet that's always cited alongside Milton. Mm, Also writing in iambic pentameter and often not rhyming, blank verse. Uh, Milton's father worked as a legal secretary and also composed church music, I think kind of as a side hustle. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, many say that this influenced Milton's love of music, which later led to his love of, of poetry. Uh, his family was pretty well off, uh, well off enough that Milton was able to study with private tutors and then go to what we would now call private school. Um, Milton also said that his father pushed him towards studying literature, which I don't think is something most people in that time pushed, especially back then, unless they lived in a certain level of comfort. I don't know that there's ever been an era in history where parents were in a widespread way encouraging their children to study literature. Unless they lived at a certain level of comfort. You're right. You're right. Uh, Milton studied Latin, Greek, Hebrew, French, and Italian, as well as many other subjects. This is important because of how he was able to read a lot of great works in their original language and how much they influenced him. He was incredibly smart. Yes. He went on to attend Christ College in Cambridge with the intention of becoming a minister. But while at college, he was drawn to poetry, and that became his main focus. He was, unsurprisingly, a great student. He graduated cum laude. But also unsurprisingly, for those who know his work and have read about him, he was an argumentative student to the point where he was suspended for a disagreement with a tutor. I don't think the suspension was a huge deal because he went back, he got his bachelor's, and he got his master's. Um, It was in college that he started writing some of his first poems, one being On the Morning of Christ's Nativity, a a poem about Christ's incarnation. After graduating, he continued to study at home uh, with the intention of becoming a poet. It's such a funny thing for me to hear. Like, I'm going to be a poet. (laughs) I think it was more accepted back then. Uh, But when you hear someone say that, I have never heard anyone say that nowadays. Yeah. Well, if you're going to study to be a poet, it helps to be able to still live with your parents. It sure does. Um, Milton actually claimed that God called on him to be a poet. And if you were as talented as him, maybe you would feel the same way. Yeah. Um, and this is where we see more of his early writings, one of them being Comas a Mask, about a lady who was lost in the woods and taken by a necromancer that is attempting to seduce her. And she uses her virtue to say no to him. Good honor. Um, around this time, his mother died and one of his dear friends from college drowned. And he wrote uh, Lycidius, a poem where he explores his feelings on death. And I actually think this is one of Milton's most famous early poems. It's something that is referenced uh, apart from Paradise Lost. Oh, I'd be interested. Well, <laughs> no, I've just, I was impressed with Paradise Lost, so I'd be interested to read more Milton. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was reading smatterings of his poetry while doing this segment, and some of it's, I mean, most of it is just beautiful. He took a tour through Europe, as well bred children were wont to do. By children, I mean people in their 20s. It was seen as part of the educational process, and the way I think of it is this is um, like studying abroad that a lot of American college students do now, except for only a very specific class of people could afford to do this. On this tour, he met many notable figures who influenced his views and writings. The most famous was when he was in Florence, and this is not confirmed, but most experts seem to think that he met Galileo who at the time was under house arrest by the Inquisition for heresy. He, Galileo, had claimed that the earth revolved around the sun, and this went against the teachings of the Catholic Church. And he wouldn't stop right away, so they arrested him and probably would have put him in jail if he hadn't been so old. Uh, Milton stopped his tour early to go back to England, which was bracing itself for civil war. Now, the English Civil War is 
fascinating and very complicated, and I am in no way an expert having not studied it in any real way. But it did have a huge impact on Milton, so I'm going to give it a brief overview. King Charles I, and for historical context, he was the second king after Queen Elizabeth, if that helps at all, saw himself as a little god on earth, chosen by God to rule. Under his rule, England Anglican Protestantism was becoming more of a high church, and this was a relatively new religion. Um, if For those who don't know, King Henry, who was a few monarchs back, basically established that church so he could divorce his wife. And made the king the head of the Church of England. Yes. The Anglican church was becoming more ceremonial, which Puritans were worried was a step towards bringing back Catholicism, and Puritans were being fined for refusing to attend Anglican services. This, combined with a slew of other clashes the King, uh, King Charles had with Parliament over Parliament's relevance, uh, power, and the money the king wanted access to for various things led to war all over the British Isles and the eventual execution of King Charles. The Commonwealth of England was set up and ruled by Oliver Cromwell um, from what I gather in a very dictator-like fashion. Before the Civil War, when Milton got back from touring Europe, he got married. But it didn't go very well. Either he sent his wife away or she left him. It's unclear and different sources say different things. Either way, she went to go live with her family without him. A few months later, he wrote a, a trustee advocating for divorce. He framed it as an appeal for personal liberty and based it on arguments from the Bible. Side note, he didn't get a divorce. His wife came back three years later with her family to all live with him. They were royalist and in danger when Charles I lost Scotland in a battle. Oh, wow. But it seemed that he and his wife were able to work it out. Uh, they had multiple children together. So hopefully, I don't know, they managed to make it work. In 1644, he published Agropicitia, a defense of free speech. And I think I said it right. Um, he claimed that the truth can never be known until the second coming of the Messiah, and that we must search for truth in every way we can, which means that we shouldn't be censored. He believed that life was about discovering truth through mistakes, though not being deliberately bad. Now, these ideas of free speech and the right to divorce seem fair and normal to a modern Western thinker. But they were radical at the time. Um, it was very shocking, and he acquired the nickname Milton the Divorcer. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the name. <laughs> it's all in the name. Um, <clears throat> if you can't tell already from our topic, uh, religion was very important in Milton's life. Obviously, Paradise Lost. His father was a Protestant that had been disinherited from his family for rejecting the Catholic faith. Milton was a Puritan. I could not find when he became a Puritan. Um, I, if someone knows, please tell me. I'd be really interested. He liked that Puritans preached that the Bible was the authority over institutional hi uh, hi hierarchies. Why can I not say that word? And I'm sure it was very appealing when you believe that the major religious institutions around you were corrupt. A great case to be made. He could also read Hebrew, so he could read the Hebrew Bible. And I'm sure... This made it easier for him to hold it up as an authority since he could actually understand the original source. And Greek, too, couldn't mm -hmm. he? Yeah. Uh, one of many languages he could read. It yeah. helped his poetry reading, too. Yes. 
Um, he wrote multiple pamphlets for pushing for the purification of the Am- Anglican Church. And he didn't believe that this could be accomplished with the king since the king was so entwined with the church. The king was the head of the church. When the king was beheaded, um, Milton saw it as an act of God in that it wasn't being mediated, that this could happen, that God allowed the king to be killed. He defended the regicide in the tenure of kings and magistrates, and this got the attention of Oliver Cromwell, who I mentioned before led the new Commonwealth government kind of a dictator, and he appointed Milton to the position of Secretary of Foreign Tongues. Milton served as a translator and an intellectual. Um, He defended the new government against attacks, um, mostly against those about overthrowing the monarchy. He stopped writing poetry while he was in this position, though he mentioned during this time period that he had an epic poem in mind that he would like to work on. But he put it on hold for political work. He considered this a religious service. He thought he was helping create God's kingdom on earth. He continued to be loyal when Cromwell dissolved Parliament and when Cromwell's son Richard succeeded him. That sounds like a king, doesn't it? It sure does. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, As many know, since the British monarchy is still thriving, the Commonwealth did not last, the army removed Richard, and the monarchy was restored with Charles II. Milton went into hiding, and his works in defense of the Cromwellian government were publicly burned. He stayed in hiding until Parliament passed the Acts of Oblivion, pardoning most of those who had opposed Charles II. Many who had supported Cromwell were killed, and in nasty, nasty ways, medieval ways. And Milton probably would have endured the same fate, except some powerful friends intervened on his behalf. Because he was such a great poet. Maybe. Was I think that was part of it. Oh, had, I didn't read that. He had literary <laughs> friends who were like, not this one. <laughs> not this one. He did live in the Tower of London for a bit and was in fear of being killed for a while. Um, Beyond the dissolution of what he thought was the government God wanted, there was a lot of tragedy in Milton's later life. He lost his eyesight. <clears throat> he claimed that the many pieces he wrote for the Cromwellian government is what made him go blind. His enemies said it was divine retribution. Most now think it was glaucoma. Um, His wife died in childbirth and uh, a son the next month. He remarried and his second wife died two years into their marriage and their new daughter died a month later. Yeah. After his pardon, uh, he was pretty unpopular. He was financially strapped, blind, and angry. But on the bright side, he did have time to write. He wanted to write a work on themes of Christianity. He wanted to write it in the format of the Iliad, the Odyssey, Divine Comedy, and Epic. Um, These works that he'd grown up studying and was such a big fan of. And he wanted to write an English version of an epic poem because he didn't really think one existed. Right. Um, I read, I don't know if this is true, that he believed he shared a muse that had inspired Moses and King David and that she visited him nightly in his dreams. I know that he wanted to be inspired by God to better understand the things he was writing about. I know I know that he said that. Um, also, uh, I, I think he said that he wanted to do for English uh, the kind of poem that Virgil had done for Latin. I can believe that, yeah. Um, Since he was blind, he would dictate the poem uh, that would become Paradise Lost to his daughters or an aide. And in this poem, like you talked about, you can see Milton's worldviews. 
and asking how did things go so wrong in political affairs, tracing it back to original sin. You can see his belief belief in free will as a God-given right. It is clear in his poem that God made Adam and Eve free to fall. Um, And even though he was out of favor and many of his works were being burned, Paradise Lost was popular right away, even among royalists. A lot recast Satan as Cromwell, like you talked about. William Blake famously said Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. Yeah, whether you agreed with him religiously or not, from the time he wrote Paradise Lost, everyone could appreciate it as a great work. Mm -hmm. It is considered by many today to be the greatest epic poem in the English language. And I've read that its influence on English literature is second only to Shakespeare. It inspired British political parties and influenced the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. I think that's pretty obvious. A handful of famous people that it inspired are Mary Shelley, Woodsworth, William Blake, C.S. Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, Malcolm X, and of course, Philip Pullman. So that's my uh, production segment, I guess, Milton's Life was a production that's super interesting, and he's—I only just touched on it, too. I feel like there's so much more to go into with him. Yes, the times he lived in were so interesting, and for him to be an interesting figure during them is quite an accomplishment in, of, in and of itself. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I knew more about that that part of history. There's things that, as you said them, I thought, oh, that's right, oh, that's right, and yet felt very ignorant for not immediately yeah. remembering them. Thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. I hope I did it justice. So now we get to our opinions. Um, so first of all, why did we choose this to pair with His Dark Materials or The Golden Compass? Well, His Dark Materials, the title comes right out of uh, a description in Paradise Lost referring to the materials that God made the, the made creation out of. Um, when Satan is traveling from hell to uh, this new universe created in the the mortal plane um, that earth is on when he's trying to get to it uh, he has to go through this uh, chaotic realm literally ruled by chaos and uh, with his queen ancient night you know that which was before the the you know creation and the, all the materials, the elements of heat and the flood and all these things are all clashing at all times. And it's dangerous even for a being as powerful as Satan to try to move through them. Um, but these, at one point, it's uh, these materials are described as his dark, dark materials. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah. Um, oh, the, the image of Satan, because Satan doesn't just get to earth. He gets to the universe. You know, you see him passing all these stars and the moon and the sun before alighting at the top of, uh, you know, our globe. I don't know that it's called a globe, but at least the the surface of the dome, you know. Yeah, the imagery in Paradise Lost is second to none. Oh, it is very impressive. Uh, The the things that he's attempting to describe, like a hellish council— the way that he describes them speaking and orating and what their applause sound like, you know, like like a wind moving through crags and caves and rocks and like, you know, this low groaning sound. So it's, you know, it's, it's very evocative. And the, the way that he describes Satan's face and these other devils and the way they carry themselves and what hell looks like and 
it's um it's I mean I've seen these kinds of things depicted in fantasy many times and it struck me as original and of a higher quality <laughs> and it's from hundreds of years ago yeah well so I'm a huge fan of his dark materials it was one of my favorite books growing up and when the tv show was coming out on hbo one of those subjects that I was like we have to cover it and I was looking for something that we could pair it with and I kept on reading Philip Pullman articles and you know I was thinking oh maybe we could do something steampunk because it definitely has a steampunk element and the only source that Philip Pullman really references is Paradise Lost and to me it was very intimidating to read an older work of English literature I didn't think I'd be interested in it I didn't think I'd be engaged and finally I was talking to you and I was like, I think we should just do Paradise Lost. It'll be good to go, you know, we'll go back and read this old work. But I was kind of dreading it. Mm. I, I, it sounded like such a good idea when Claire said it um, that even though I was intimidated too, I felt like I had to just say, oh, yes, if, if that's the case, then I guess I, I'm not scared to read Paradise Lost. <laughs> even though I love Shakespeare and I can read Shakespeare and he's from afterwards, I still felt intimidated. Yeah. Um, and I like Shakespeare too and I've read a fairly decent amount of it, of Shakespeare. But what I was going to say is that then when I started reading it, it sounds so silly because this is one of the biggest works of English literature. I was shocked at how good it was, yeah. just blown away. And then just reading it on the subway and feeling emotional on the subway. I, I didn't expect that, you know. Um, so it was a real treat, I have to say. Um, and I'm really excited to kind of re-read and re- well, I guess not re-watch, but watch his dark materials with this in mind. Yeah. Now it, that I really know where it's coming from. As soon as it started to me, it reading it, when you know how outrageously ambitious he is, when he's saying that like, oh yeah, I want to do for English what Virgil did for Latin. I want to write something in the, of the quality of like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Um, and that's why it's in heroic verse and it doesn't rhyme because they didn't rhyme. And if you're really going to try to say something, you shouldn't either, <laughs> you know, like, and he, he's setting it up right in the intro. And he's trying to talk about not only, you know, the fall of, you know, the, the, the devil and his angels, but also of the creation and fall of man and, and the salvation of man and, and, to and to explain why God does what he does which is such an outrageous thing for somebody to try to say in a book. And I know people have to do it for religion, but when you're even just a poet and you're saying, okay, the purpose of this is to make God's actions understood to understandable to man. Oh my goodness, sir. And you're going to do it in heroic verse. All right. <laughs> and then you start to read it and you're like, oh my goodness, he's, I think he's doing the thing. And he did it blind. Yeah. yeah. Which, which also makes a lot of sense because when you read it to me, it's like, oh, this needs to be spoken. Like when Satan's making a speech to the the other devils of hell, you're like, and the other devils are making speeches as well. It's like, this needs to be read out loud. When he comes into a situation where he can't win by brute force and intimidation and he's got to be persuasive elsewhere outside of hell, it's like, oh my goodness, you, you need to read this silver-tongued guy's words out loud. It actually makes more sense when you read it as someone speaking and performing it than it does on the page to me. Um, I also was surprised at how fantastical it was. You know, beyond like I thought it would be more dry, and I I'm not, obviously there's a lot of religious elements to it. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but basically I didn't expect all these characters from Greek and Egyptian and all these different myths to be a part of this story. They're all in, I mean, they're in hell. Yeah. But, 
Um, but it, and also the way he describes the other realms and it might be the understanding of, you know, there wasn't quite the scientific understanding of space and the universe and the way that we have it now, but it felt very fantastical to me. Yeah. You know, I was, I was kind of worried that this wouldn't be a good fit for our podcast, that it was, you know, not really a, uh, fantastical enough piece, but it, it is. Oh, it is. It is. When he, I mean, it starts off with them. I mean, it. It's an incredible moment to start from. Every the very beginning of the piece is Satan and all his fallen angels on their backs in chains in hell. They have just literally just been smote there by God and more specifically Michael the archangel. And the other devils are in a stupor of confusion and pain and Satan is the first one to wake up. And starts to rouse the others to get up to, we got to talk, we got to figure out what our next move is. And they build a palace and they assemble and it is terrifying (laughs) and it's awful. And they are in hell and in pain all the while. It's, It's something. Yeah, it's fantastical from the jump. And also we talked about how many elements from D&D are are in... Paradise Lost. And I don't know if they're directly pulled from Paradise Lost, but it certainly has influenced other works that they're directly pulled from. Oh, uh, for sure. There's some stuff in there. There is stuff from D&D that D&D tamed down (laughs) from Paradise Lost because it was too intense to put in the game. But... Yeah. <laughs> D&D aside, um, we do think it'll match up well with his dark material since it's directly based on it. Yes, I'm really excited to get more into his dark materials and to start to see those connections. I get the whole thing of of the universes and creation, mm-hmm. and I know that it's it's supposedly a very anti-religion or maybe anti-God piece. Um, so to have it paired with something that is such a great work by such a religious man, um, you know, seeking to be inspired by God is very interesting. But part of our research about Paradise Lost is that that is not unique to the fans of Paradise Lost to come on either sides of religious and political debates. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsripodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on social medias at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. I can be found on Twitter at James Foey Jr., that's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find the third part of our podcast, Kyle Willoughby, at Clex 303, that's K-L-E-X 303. You can learn more about Paradise Lost on our Facebook page, where we'll post some of the articles that we researched. Our producer is James Foey. That's me. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>